Grandma Magic, a podcast from the Grandmother Collective. We are a nonprofit organization that supports and advocates for a world where a grandmother's power is seen, cultivated, and activated for positive change. The Grandma Magic podcast is an opportunity to learn more about the unique positions that grandmothers, aunties, and other older women around the world can play in advancing positive social development by talking to and learning from grandmother changemakers. We hope this series inspires you, brings you joy, and helps you recognize the enduring magic and wisdom that comes from grandmothers everywhere. My name is Lindsay Farrell, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Janet Carroll, a mother of three and grandmother of four. After retiring from 26 years as the VP of Clinical Services with Hospice and Community Care in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Janet was elected to the Mannheim Township School Board, where she has served since 2018. She has been a reading volunteer for over 12 years with second graders at a local public elementary school and recently became a cuddler volunteer at the local NICU, working one night a week from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. Janet was nominated for our podcast, and when we first talked, she wasn't sure that she qualified as a grandmother changemaker. However, what we are most interested in revealing is the small and big ways that older women in our communities just do the work and make the difference. And Janet exemplifies this. So I'm excited to learn more about you and what led you to today. Welcome, Janet. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so we've been asking questions about grandmother figures, but more recently I've been asking a question that I think is really unique to grandmothers. Well, maybe not unique, but something that we find that grandmothers really perpetuate and and contribute to our cultures, which is that of helping to create new and also to advance or continue rituals and traditions. So can you tell us about a ritual or a tradition that's really meaningful to you and why? I would think it would be going to the Jersey Shore. It's not like a formal tradition that happens on a certain time, but it's something that in my lifetime, I have been to the Jersey Shore every year of my life, except one, and this is coming from Western Pennsylvania where I grew up, except one year when I was in high school and my father was ill and we couldn't go. And my neighbor, who also went to the Jersey Shore, brought back ocean water in a bottle. (laughs) So I have touched the ocean every year. And even when we were in Guantanamo Bay, when my husband was in the Navy, and we always made it back to the Jersey Shore. And so that's something that I will be doing in a few weeks. And as we go to the southern part of Ocean City, New Jersey, which is right next to Corson's Inlet State Park. And so part of the tradition, too, is once we get there, is that sometimes even before unpacking, we walk on the beach and down around the undeveloped part and just kind of be with the ocean. And I would say that's a tradition. The whole concept of traditions, it's kind of what you've seen someone else doing. And so my parents actually met at the Jersey Shore, got married down there. My grandmother actually managed a hotel on the beach in Margate. So it's just been in us forever. And fortunately, all of my children and my grandchildren love the ocean. And so to be in the ocean with them is just a delight. So they've continued that tradition as well, joining you and maybe also creating their own. 
Yeah, we're now getting into that time where granddaughters are having high school activities. And so it's sometimes hard to get everyone there. We have one family in particular now that lives in Ohio that won't be making it down because of high school schedules and stuff like that. But they know that that's important to me and that that's part of who I am. Great. We have a similar tradition to go to the mountains. So I come from a part of the country that if I don't visit the mountain of Arizona once a year, I don't feel like I've gone home. Yeah, it's like it's a touchstone that is just really important. So Janet, you know, I want to start by understanding there's a lot you're doing today as a grandmother changemaker. You're a busy lady. I think you told me that you would like more free time when we talked at first. And well, let's get to that. But let's talk a little bit first about the foundations of your career and what brought you to today. So tell us about this career that you built, helping to support the introduction of hospice into the area. I remember, I think that you said that it didn't previously exist. So was this something that you set out to do when you were pursuing your education? Not at all. My career and my education was all in nursing. And initially, I just was doing medical surgical nursing. And then also, I really got involved in home health. I started in the hospital and then went into home health. And I loved being with people in their homes and seeing how sometimes what the medical establishment would recommend was like not feasible in the home, or there was just not a translation of what they were taught and being able to do that at home. So I had had that experience. And then this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, and there was just discussion about hospice. The first one in the U.S. was the Connecticut hospice. It basically started all in England with Dame Cicely Saunders. And so it's kind of being talked about. And then we had moved to Lancaster the end of the 70s and it started being talked about here. And so actually, before it even started, I had kind of like, wow, this makes so much sense to have a team approach supporting people and families at end of life. And so I was part of the initial meetings that the community had. Once it got started, I was actually a volunteer in their speakers bureau to help spread the word. At the time, I was active with the Pennsylvania Nurses Association and head of their education committee. And to launch that idea in Lancaster in 1980, we actually had a full day seminar on making hospice concrete. And even though initially in Lancaster, we weren't making a concrete building, it was a concept of care that we were coordinating resources and going into the homes. It went from there to where it really was being well-received in many ways, but then also kind of avoided and taboo in others. So by the time that I left hospice, we had a thousand employees and 500 patients and the largest hospice in the state of Pennsylvania, 
opened an inpatient unit, but it was not easy. I think to some extent, I might have been able to have a voice in the community because my husband was also in healthcare. And so kind of like, you know, I was known, was in different avenues and able to talk about it. And I remember there was a palliative care physician in Pittsburgh, Bob Arnold, and he would talk about presenting the idea to a family. It's like, when you go home, would you like some equipment to make things easier? Would you like to have someone stop in to help you with this or that? Would you like to have someone to call? And so it kind of went through all the services and then people were agreeing. And the, the way we get that is through hospice and not have the word be scary. And so that's how we grew from being in the field as one of the, like a, literally a part-time nurse. And we had a part-time social worker and we had a director. It was that small. And then it got to be so big. And it is one of the premier organizations and care providers in this county and still is. That is a lot to be proud of. I didn't do it alone. Oh, no, I'm sure you did it. But, you know, even taking the initiative or like being bold enough to get up and speak about it in public, I wonder if you know where that came from inside you. What sort of foundation was laid for you to have that kind of boldness to try this hard thing and to do something new? It was really a belief in the care and a belief in the team. And we just kind of had a mindset that, in fact, the joke was with the staff is that we weren't done providing care and going out until I was the last one in the office. Because it was an organization that was totally responsive. And that's kind of how we build it and the expectations. The director and I, or president, you know, titles changed as organizations grow. And we were very clear about what needed to be done. And the thing is that what needed to be done is meeting the patients and families where they are. And it wasn't about we were sweeping in and this is how you do it. It's you go in and you kind of figure out the family dynamics and you also figure out what the condition of the patient is. And if the family and the condition of the patient aren't in the same place, then how you bring them together and then also do it within the whole concept of it's a medical service. It is under doctor's orders. It is a team approach that requires team meetings and problem solving and care plans and resources. Oh, and when it all started, there is, of course, with no reimbursement for it. But then Medicare did see that it was of value. Certainly Medicare has some issues that can make it challenging, but that helped make it more available. And private insurances also came through. And so that was really helpful to see it grow and be able for people to reach out. But Lancaster County was always very, very supportive right from the beginning. Even before Medicare, we were able to have people on staff. There was a lot of volunteer effort. And that is thanks to this community. The problem that is solved by hospice, is it a medical problem? Is it a cultural problem? Is it a social problem? What were you solving for? It was a matter of basically people confronting their end of life and also a lot of misconceptions about what hospice was. And to this day, hospice is still brought in very late. It's sort of like when people we call actively dying that they think, okay, let's bring hospice in. 
But we know medically, at least for some illnesses, I mean, certainly people have sudden events and that is not predictable. But with chronic conditions or cancer diagnoses or things like that, it comes to a point where your goals of care are changing. And so when your goals of care are not to cure or to basically live forever with this chronic condition, then that's when hospice can be involved and be helpful because then it is living with a new set of goals. And those goals tend to be the idea of comfort and support and planning and extra help in the home, perhaps extra equipment, medications or symptom management. And so that is progressive. And the thing is, and people don't realize is that some people are actually discharged from hospice because as hospice went from mostly a cancer-based diagnosis group to chronic illnesses, congestive heart failure, COPD, things like that, is that sometimes those illnesses when they were progressing and their symptoms were worsening, actually getting the symptoms under control extended the prognosis because they weren't working so hard. (laughs) And so a progressive symptom can really take the energy, takes the sleep, takes the nutrition. But if you get symptoms under control and then you can sleep better, can eat better, are more mobile, then the prognosis can change. So people actually are discharged from hospice other than through death. I think it's so interesting because I think that team approach, what I've noticed in my own experience with hospice is that it provides a level of stress reduction for the whole family. It sounds to me that even some of that discharge from hospice might come from, oh my gosh, there's so many people that are watching and taking care of me in a way that it's not any more scary. And the idea of having a number 24 hours a day to be able to call, and because I've always been in healthcare, and the challenge of accessing healthcare in the moment when you need it with someone who knows you is pretty difficult. And so you have this team that has this record, and it's an electronic record, as all medical records are now. And so people can access, if you have a question about your medication, is that you're calling me, I'll look it up, and I I can see and I can answer questions. I can see what medications you might need and order things. And it's just putting a circle of disciplines and resources around a family. Now, not every family wants to have all that. And so that's fine too. It's not like everyone is forced, but if you need spiritual support, if you need psychosocial support, nursing support, aid support, volunteer support, that's what hospice is. Yeah. It's organic a bit. It's not so prescriptive. It's more human. The prescription that we always had is you meet the patient and family where they are. And that is sometimes hard for people because we do know best, you know. Or we like to pretend and not be actually where we are, right? We don't want to admit where we are. And that's why, you know, sometimes it's a matter of having a conversation that, you know, I've been with other families and this has been an issue. Has that been an issue for you? The thing about end-of-life care is that it certainly doesn't feel normal because it isn't. I mean, the good news for most families is they don't go through it very often. 
And then when they go through it, they're at different stages of their own life and age and resources and things like that. So it clearly can be a, a very frightening thing, but it also can be a very beautiful thing. And that's what most families come around to appreciate. And the common comment was always like, I wish we had called hospice earlier. And so you put that message out a lot. (laughs) And so that hopefully others will do it. And then also just to reassure, it's helping for today. The situation may change tomorrow, but you know, it's looking like you're needing help today. And so that will be part of it. I mean, it sounds like hospice is still kind of in its infancy. Two generations, right? Two generations have have experienced this? Actually, probably into the third now, two to three. The challenge has also been is that with most hospices started out as not-for-profit, and then when Medicare started paying, then there was some for-profit. And not that for-profit is bad. There are great for-profits and there are some bad non-profits, but it then caused a higher degree of scrutiny from Medicare. And so given that the eligibility for hospice is a limited prognosis and pursuing more palliative care and not curative treatments, it's not measurable. I mean, like there are other things in medicine that get approved because there's a certain blood level or a certain value, or it's concretely measurable. Prognosis is not. And it's something that in the medical community, bless their hearts, but they are really optimistic. And so even getting a physician to understand that, and that's why we really started a lot of language about goals of care. We're not putting a time frame on it, but what are the goals of care? And also there's their question we would ask is the surprise question is that, would you be surprised if the person died this week? Would you be surprised if the person was still alive in a year? And it's interesting how people and physicians as well can answer that question. So it was referred to as the surprise question, either for a short or for a long Interesting. Well, let's move on to today. What prompted your desire to run for the school board? I mean, it's still in service to the community. The theme fits for your life, but what was the impetus for this? And you're right. The whole idea of service, because as I've been thinking about this whole discussion and wondering what has motivated me in various times of my life and what I'm doing now, is it does come back to service. And even within industries, like in terms of in my time in hospice, and then I'll come back to the school board, there were needs to be involved at a state level and a national level because the industry needed that kind of support and that kind of direction. And so when it came to the school board, and I hate to mention this, but there was an election in 2016. And I had been asked to run on the school board before, and I thought, oh, no, 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 my field is healthcare. So it was after 2016, then the school board election was 2017. And I said, well, if you have an opening on the slate, I would consider it. I don't need to do it, but I think we need to have a full slate of candidates. And so I should have known that in just saying that if needed, I would have been nominated. So they stopped looking for anyone at the time. So I was nominated for a two-year slot. 
it happened that year that also there was a big issue in our district related to the need for a new middle school. And while the current board was already moving it along, there was a faction that wanted to stop that. And I felt really strongly that it needed to be done, the new school. And so I just kind of got into it. And then since it was a two-year term, then I had to run for re-election again in 19. And the middle school was built. It was in early and under budget. Taxes did not go through the roof, as everyone was so concerned about. And then there was a little thing called the pandemic that came along in 20. So I always said, we thought building the middle school was tough. You had the pandemic, and then we have other things going on now that all school boards are struggling with in terms of the culture wars. And that has been a challenge. But given that the whole, I mean, of why I continue to do it and why I feel so passionate about public education is that, as you mentioned in the intro, I have been volunteering at a school in Lancaster City with second graders and reading. And my husband and I had done it for 10 years and then We took time off for the pandemic, and I just returned to doing that last fall. Twice a week, an hour and a half each time, with these little guys that you walk in, and they say, oh, Mrs. Carroll's here. Say good morning to Mrs. Carroll. And when you're leaving, we kind of had this thing about, I would always tell them to be good listeners. And so it got to be that I said, okay, when I'm leaving, what does Mrs. Carroll always tell you? Be good listeners, <laughs> which of course they weren't always. And to see firsthand what our teachers are dealing with in the classroom. And they're doing it with love and with a tremendous amount of expertise. But this range of students in second grade from those that, you know, could read the encyclopedia to those that are still working on their alphabet. And the teacher has to figure all that out and bring all that in. I am in awe of what they do. So that was another thing that having been doing that already in the classroom, when the position and the opportunity came up to run for school board, it seemed to be a natural. And when I think back to is that I've always taught. When I was at hospice, I would teach much of the orientation. I even taught aerobic dancing for one point for a couple years. So being in that light is is something that's always felt comfortable to me. And in terms of being on a school board, I have had numerous board experiences, both at a local, state, and national level. So I think that's one of the things that gave me confidence to run for a school board, I had a lot to learn about the Pennsylvania Department of Education and Pennsylvania School Board Association and contracts for teachers and stuff like that. But the whole process of what a board is and is not, you know, the board is not the micromanager. They'd set the budgets, they hire the superintendent, evaluate the superintendent and approve policies. And now it just happened that in my six years on the board, we had some pretty significant policies to approve, like all the pandemic things. And now that policies are being challenged, 
by very various groups and factions and books being challenged and sports and stuff. So it's frustrating now. But at the same time, just like with the pandemic, I felt strongly about the positions that I took and I knew they were based in sound medical judgment. And I feel strongly about supporting the administration in how they're teaching, what they're teaching, when they're teaching, that all of this stuff that is going on is really just unnecessary and takes the school board and the staff away from the important things that need to be done. And so that's why I'm very committed to, while I'm going off the board, really working hard to be sure that like-minded people are elected in order to stand up for the kids, for all of the kids. It's truly, it's about the kids. And right now, I think that they're kind of being used as pawns in some of the social wars, which is unfortunate. I mean, it certainly was quite a time to get yourself reelected to a school board, for sure. I wonder if you would have done it had you known. I mean, to be honest, to have a nurse on the school board during a health pandemic was a pretty amazing place for you to be. Wouldn't you think? And I was the only medical professional on the board, but we had lots of really good direction from our local hospitals and things like that because the board shifted in the approach in 21 because part of the election in 21 was just basically mask fatigue. And vaccine fear and those kinds of things that were being used, right? Right. So that was unfortunate because that has then ushered in some of the issues that we're dealing with now, which is why we have to switch the board back to those that are focused. In a part of the state that people wouldn't know is generally pretty conservative, that 2017 election, it flipped towards a more liberal majority. Isn't that right? Yes, we won all six positions. So we had a six to three margin, and that actually increased to seven to two in 19, and then flipped the other way in 21 to it's more of the six conservatives and three more liberal. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, were boundaries changed, or was this just purely based on communication and getting out the vote and things like that? All of the above. And trust me, we're looking at it all now so that we can maximize it for this year. And some of the actions that have already come before the board are raising a lot of concerns for people. And hopefully that will translate to coming out and voting because it's all in the ballot box. We're all volunteers, you know, to get this job, you know, this fun, fun job so that we can be unpaid volunteers and spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. But it truly has been my privilege to serve on this school board and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And I've tried to make a difference to support the things that I feel strongly about. Apparently, there's been some disappointment that I'm not running for school board again. But Well, you have second graders to read to and babies to cuddle at the NICU, right? I know. And four grandchildren to spend time with. Yeah, just the whole concept of what's going on in our society and in our country, I am more and more convinced that can be addressed through improving education, whether it's preschool, you know, universal preschool, 
we just have to do a better job on educating our little ones so that they're prepared from the get-go so that they are just solid and it all comes down to reading Mm -hmm. if they can't read then things go awry and i just can't emphasize that whole thing enough and so whether it's working with my on the school board or with my second graders or holding a preemie in the NICU and just wanting to give the best shot that you can give to the children that we're bringing into the world. And that's really important. Yeah, we have a lot of grandmother organizations and you wouldn't be surprised that organizations that see grandmothers as resources that are really focused in early childhood in grandmothering the kind of space that you find yourself in. That seems to be a very unique quality that as you age, you can really contribute quite easily to society. Exactly. And it's the nurturing. We have a lot of experience in it. And that nurturing, yes, it's the cuddling of the babies, but it's also the nurturing by setting an example and being active and being engaged. Sounds like also living your values. Being on a school board was a place for that for you, I think. That is very true. And I think my career was that way too. It was important to be with people at end of life. And I remember when we moved to Lancaster, it's like our kids were going to go to public school. I mean, there are other options here, but that was never an option we would consider. And so we picked this district in particular because of the school system. And I think that when you ask residents, most do pick this district for the school system. And I say that's whether for their children or whether it's a matter of they know that the property values get maintained by a good school system. I mean, let's we can be you know, <laughs> practical yeah. about that too. And so it's a matter of stepping up and filling gaps, whether it's the gap in the NICU or the gap in the second grade or the gap on the school board. That's just something that I've always felt strongly about. Well, I think we're out of time. But thank you, Janet, for joining us today. We didn't even get into gardening. Oh, my goodness. It's time. (laughs) There are, by the way, a lot of grandmother-led community gardens. It's really a big space also. Well, I could use their help over here for mine. (laughs) Okay, when we have our webinar on gardening, I'll make sure that you know about it. But no, that is very much a space for really good intergenerational connection return to the earth, you know, return to the wisdom of foods and the rituals around that. But anyway, Jana, thank you again for joining us. For listeners, if you know someone perfect for our podcast, we'd love to hear about them. Please email your recommendations to info at grandmothercollective.org. Jana, any final parting thoughts? Just as a thank you to Lindsay for creating this opportunity for me to think about things like this. And it has been my privilege as it is my privilege to be a grandmother. Thank you.